Welcome to Clear Thinking, the GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, how to think through conspiracy theories. Ken, you introduced this topic on the last podcast, but this is something that's constant. Uh, so it's in the news, it's uh, social media, it's in our minds. <laughs> Maybe you can give us a recap from last week and then tell us what you're going to cover on the next two podcasts. Yes. Well, I, I think you're exactly right, Joe. I think both of us uh, recognize that we live at a time where there's a lot of propaganda. Um, the news media talks about fake news, yellow journalism. Of course, there is um, this issue of bias, and we're learning more about our cognitive biases. And uh, for a long time, we've talked about logical fallacies. So yeah, I think that this is a very important topic. And let me uh, do a little review. I want to give you a couple definitions uh, for conspiracy theories. First one is from Merriam-Webster. He says this, conspiracy implies a secret agreement among several people, usually involving treason or great treachery. Hmm. Then uh, Wikipedia offers a little broader uh, definition, which I like. It says a conspiracy, also known as a plot, is a secret plan or agreement between people called conspirers or conspirators for an unlawful or harmful purpose, such as murder or treason, especially with political motivation, while keeping their agreement secret from the public or from other people affected by it. Joe, I think that uh, I think politics is a very interesting field, and it seems to me that uh, it's difficult to kind of constrain your political ideas and. Uh, I think for many people, uh, politics is is on the level of religion. We, uh, you know, we we care deeply about our country. We care about what's happening in the world. We care about how people are treated. And um, I even think that when people uh, say they don't believe in God, uh, I follow that kind of Augustinian tradition that says God's made us to be worshipers and to be lovers. So if we don't believe in the true and living God, the God of historic Christianity, the God of the Bible, we'll attach ourselves to something else to give us meaning and purpose. And I think, Joe, for a lot of people, that's politics. And so the political idea runs through this uh, ideas of, of conspiracy. And, and again, I, I think we live in a challenging time. I, um, I think we face in America a real challenge when it comes to a lack of freedom of speech, that some views uh, are allowed to go forth, other views are constrained. Uh, I've even read some of our elite universities. There's a real problem with uh, a lack of freedom of speech or being shouted down. So things like propaganda, and uh, it's also concerning when you think that maybe the media and they play journalism plays a critical role in the life of uh, you know a democratic nation, uh, a constitutional republic is the form of government that we have. So yellow journalism is is troubling, and uh, we've talked about some of the other issues. So. 
Let me talk briefly about these big four conspiracies that we talked about last time. Uh, of course, we talked about the JFK assassination, and I can't get away from that. Um, I think for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, my parents were Kennedy Democrats. My my mom and dad were uh, very patriotic people, and they were Kennedy supporters, and we were a Catholic family, so we took all that seriously. And then, of course, his murder in uh, on November 22nd, 1963 in Dallas, Texas, it was a shock. Um, it's kind of, it, it might sound strange uh, for people uh, who were not living at the time, but I think every bit as devastating as 9-11, and that's saying a lot because you know, 3,000 Americans died on 9-11, but it was a it was a real shock that uh, the president was killed, but he wasn't just our president. Uh, just a few months before that, he was in Berlin uh, talking about the Cold War. So he was the leader of the free world. That's a big conspiracy. And it, it uh, I think it's been investigated uh, a great deal, but lots of people are still kind of troubled by that. So we talked a little bit, and I'll come back to that a little bit later. Another big conspiracy theory, and it's now in the news, uh, UFO conspiracy theories. Um, you know, there have been rumors uh, that the government has been involved in covering up uh, what it knows about UFOs for a long time. Uh, and of course, a, a lot of this UFO craze came out of uh, the late 1940s and 1950s. And uh, the government, of course, uh, you know, the Air Force, they were uh, looking into it, uh, Project Grudge and Project Blue Book. Uh, but recently, there was a, a very uh, controversial hearing in Congress where uh, a couple people in the military said that uh, they know that the government is involved in tracking, following UFOs, and they've even discovered uh, non-human or alien bodies. I mean, I thought I'd been taken back to Roswell when I was listening to that. Of course, one thing I want to say about that is this, the man who said that uh, the American government uh, has retrieved crashed UFOs or UAPs as they're referred to today and uh, alien bodies. He didn't provide any evidence. Now, uh, I, I'm willing to look at the evidence. I mean, I'm one of the authors of our book, uh, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, but I need to be shown some evidence uh, for that. So that issue has not gone away. And Joe, I think a lot of people think, wow, if, if people are now saying hey, the government knows more than it did. Maybe they were lying the whole period. So that's that's the second one. Third one is the 9-11 conspiracy known as the truther uh, theory or conspiracy theory. And of course, um, this is the view that it was an inside job rather than Osama bin Laden uh, knocking the Twin Towers down. Um, uh, people in the American government, George Bush, maybe others, were involved in in uh, uh, bringing the twin towers down. So that's kind of the um, uh, the insider's view, uh, and, and that's still very popular. 
Um, and then uh, a fourth one that I talk about that's been around probably uh, the longest is what we call a secret society that, you know, there are rich, powerful, clandestine people, um, and they control the world. And I see a lot of that in uh, surrounding World War II when Hitler said that the Jews, of course, he blamed everything on the Jews, that they were manipulating the money markets, etc. So those are kind of the big four conspiracy theories. And Joe, I don't, I don't think that they have, uh, they've gone away. I think that they're still there. And now there's even more conspiracy theories. Uh, and obviously, uh, go going through the pandemic, there are a lot of people who have questions about uh, the government, about what the government has told us about, uh, you know, where did that virus begin and uh, why were people locked down? And, you know, I, I put up recently um, a couple of comments on Facebook about conspiracy theories, and it just went, I mean, I got a lot of people responding, and I thought, we, we need to keep talking about some of these issues. Sounds good. Well, let me let me go back and say just a few more words about why I think conspiracy theories are are popular. And I in a in a book that I wrote with Mark Perez, that's uh, still quite a ways away from uh, being released. Um, I I mention uh, how many. I mentioned eight, eight reasons why I think conspiracies are popular. Let me touch on those one more time. Um, first of all, I think conspiracy theories are popular because sometimes they're true. Uh, sometimes they, in fact, actually happened. Uh, I think of the Lincoln conspiracy. Um, I think of Watergate. Uh, and I think a lot of the conspiracy theories about the assassinations not only of John F. Kennedy, but of people like Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, uh, they were kind of spurred by Watergate. People thought, hey, you know, here you've got a president of the United States who is involved in a plot. Uh, uh, and so maybe there is a lot more we don't know. And of course, the context of that too was the Vietnam War where many people thought the government was not truthful. So sometimes they prove true. Uh, if I could bring one more here from World War II, uh, there was a conspiracy to get rid of Adolf Hitler uh, by members of the German military. Uh, you can see the movie Valkyrie, for example. That was a, cons a conspiracy. And um, some people would suggest there may be more than 30 different plots to try to kill Hitler. I wonder, as a student of World War II, that maybe it was good none of them succeeded because if he had been killed, the Germans might have put somebody in there that knew what they were doing and the war may have lasted longer. Uh, but one of the reasons is you just can't reject conspiracies out of hand. They, they do happen from time to time. Number two, uh, conspiracies are popular because we're finite creatures. A lot of things we don't know. Uh, and, and I think that's an important point that, you know, our finitude, uh, as Christians, we talk a lot about our fallenness, but we're also finite beings. There's things we don't know. And I, I think at times it bothers us. And so uh, sometimes conspiracies 
are popularized by our lack of uh, knowledge or our lack of information. Uh, a third reason, conspiracies, uh, they take a lot less effort to start than they do to verify. You know, you can, you can say that George Bush was involved in 9-11, or you can say that the CIA or the FBI or uh, Lyndon Johnson was behind the assassination of John F. Kennedy. But to refute that, it, it takes a lot of work. And so it's easy to say things. Now, one of the points I want to come back later, Joe, is I think that this is a problem. I mean, I, uh, I remember Lyndon Johnson, and I'm certainly willing to accept that Lyndon Johnson wasn't the, uh, the most ethical person in the world. Um, I'm willing to accept that maybe he was involved in a certain corruption that people have raised and certainly wasn't always an easy person to, um, uh, to communicate. He had a big ego. But to say that Lyndon Johnson was involved in the murder of President John F. Kennedy, what, what if you're wrong about that? I mean, what, 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 is that what does that do to his family? Uh, what about George Bush? What if Bush was not involved in 9-11. I mean, George Bush is a Christian. Uh, we have a responsibility as Christians uh, to not bear false witness. So, um, you know, if you're going to make a claim, you've got to be careful about that. And it it's easier to start a rumor than it is to squelch one. Number four, um, and I think that this is an important one. I talk about conspiracies they serve to even things out. And Joe, there is a there is a cognitive bias known as proportionality bias. And I think it fits really well here. I, I remember one of the first books I ever read on the Kennedy assassination was The Death of a President by the historian William Manchester. And he was uh, chosen by Robert Kennedy, the president's brother, and Jacqueline Kennedy, uh, JFK's wife, to write a, a, a history of what happened in Dallas. And it, in fact, uh, this sounds rather amazing. I, I think at one point, Manchester said he had interviewed more people than the Warren Commission. So this was, this was really an amazing book. Uh, it's the book that convinced me that Oswald did kill Kennedy and that he acted alone without a conspiracy, along with the Warren Commission. But the idea that Manchester brings out, and this relates to the proportionality bias, it's this idea. Uh, and Robert Dalek says this in his autobiography of President Kennedy uh, entitled An Unfinished Life. He says, uh, you know, when you when you look at Kennedy and you look at Oswald, uh, they don't they don't balance. How could somebody as inconsequential as Oswald kill somebody as profoundly consequential as JFK? And Manchester even brings in World War II, and he says, at least with the Holocaust, that this terrible, evil, probably the greatest crime in history, um, at least you have this very malevolent uh, Nazi group. And so there's kind of a rough balance. But when you look at Oswald, I mean, here's a guy who's working at the Book Depository Building in 1963, and he's making $1.25 an hour. Um, he could barely feed his family. His, uh, he had one child. His, his wife, Marina, was pregnant with another child. 
they had real difficulty. I, I don't know why the CIA didn't give him more money. Uh, you know, he was he was really having a difficult time. Uh, so it's hard to balance that. And but if you plug in a conspiracy, I mean, if the CIA was involved, uh, or the Russians, or um, Castro, uh, then that kind of rings balance. And so one of the biases we have to be careful of is our mind kind of works in such a way as if we see a large uh, issue, we want cause and effect to relate appropriately to one another. And, and by the way, there, there is one uh, area in which I am willing to concede on the JFK assassination. Um, I think the Warren Commission did a, did a great job. I think they're underestimated and, and criticized unfairly. But you know, put myself back into that time, Joe, um, I could see how they would feel pressure. Um, and I think Johnson would feel pressure. I mean, what if this was something that the communists were involved? What, what if Soviet Union was involved? That might be a that might be the third world war. So uh, I can understand how people might feel pressured that, hey, um, Maybe it's convenient that Oswald was the sole assassin. And, you know, so there's at least a side that I'm, I'm willing to open up to it. But this idea of uh, the proportionality bias, cause and effect must balance. Well, sometimes they don't. I mean, Oswald was hired at the School Book Depository on October 16th. Uh, nobody knew about the uh, parade route. Uh, until uh, November 19th. Uh, in my view, it's one of the happenstances of history. Um, you know, Oswald said he wanted to do something that people would be talking about 10,000 years in the future, and maybe he did. But I, I don't think that he, um, I don't think that he had the kind of temperament and personality to play a central role in a conspiracy. And in fact, Here's a quotation that was often missed. This is from Earl Warren, who was, of course, the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And uh, he was uh, chosen by Johnson to lead what was called the Warren Commission. Here's a quotation. It says, in his memoirs, Warren wrote that Oswald was incapable of being a key operative in a conspiracy and that any high-level government conspiracy would inevitably have been discovered. I think that that is a powerful reason. I think that's largely why I don't believe in a conspiracy. I don't think Oswald had the capacity to operate that way, and I think it would have come out. So that's number four. Number five, another reason conspiracies are popular is it's fun to speculate Um I think there was a professor at the uh, Southern, Southern Methodist University right there in Dallas, uh, and he's, he taught a course on the Kennedy assassination. And he said, I stopped telling him that I thought Oswald was the lone assassin because I took all the fun out of it. Hmm. Well, people like, people like these conspiracies. Uh, it's kind of fun. Um, now the darker side. Uh, I think conspiracy theories can sometimes serve to justify our biases and our prejudices. We have to be careful about that. Um, I think being a fallen human being, and I think being a finite human being, 
All of us have uh, prejudices. All of us have biases. Uh, sometimes conspiracy theories kind of uh, support that. Number seven, um, you know, the Christian world, I was driving in this morning, I was thinking to myself, we live in a moral universe. The Christian worldview says that there is a, a clash between evil and good, that there is a, there's an invisible war taking place. And uh, so if you're a Christian, you have to take into the account that there are bad actors in the world. Um, you know, some, some people um, want to manipulate and control. And uh, that, I think, is happening in, in our time. And number eight, um, the Internet, social media. Um, you know, for Joe, for you and me who grew up uh, long before things like email and uh, the web and social media, it's it's a very different world in which we live, and you've got virtually everything at your keyboard. And uh, so those are some of the reasons that I think conspiracy theories are popular. Joe, what what are your thoughts or comments about uh, those eight reasons? I appreciate you laying them out. Um, just one uh, thought on the um, on what did you call it? Uh, proportionality. Yeah. Um, it seems that other people have had opportunities, not just in the case of Oswald uh, assassinating Kennedy, but President Reagan was shot uh, a couple decades later. Yeah. And there have been near misses with other presidents. And even the Pope has to have protection because there could be just one person out there. Um, so it seems that this may not be as um, as big a, of an obstacle. That is, one person can one person of a simple mind pull it off. Well, apparently they they can, given the opportunity. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've had four American presidents assassinated. Of course, Lincoln was the first one. Small conspiracy involved in that. Um, we then had uh, Garfield and McKinley. Um, and they were assassinated by kind of very disturbed in individual people. And then, of course, Kennedy was killed in 63. But there have been other assassination attempts. Um, an attempt was made on Franklin Roosevelt, on Harry Truman. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was shot um, in the chest. He had his speech there, and it kind of slowed the bullet down. But he was bleeding and he said, I'm not going to the hospital until I finish my speech. Now, that's a leader, if you ask me. Um, well, he was he was shot. Uh, you mentioned Reagan in 1981. Uh, him and the Pope were both. Uh, there was attempts on their lives just months, uh, just weeks apart. Of course, Robert Kennedy, um, Martin Luther King uh, and, and others. And so. Being president of the United States is uh, is a dangerous job, and I know that Kennedy realized that. Um, he he said, "Look, uh, the president of the United States cannot show fear," and um, you know he told the uh, Secret Service agents to stay off the bumper of his car. You know he was a politician. He wants people to see him. He wants to see and be seen. Uh, so yeah, I mean there are. There are conspiracy theories. Now, the Secret Service is a lot larger 
And Joe, one of the things I think is really interesting, I, I reread the the 888-page Warren report uh, over the last couple of weeks, and um, they made a lot of suggestions. Uh, well, not just suggestions, they made demands about how the Secret Service should change, how the FBI should change. They faulted the Dallas Police Department. They made lots of uh, statements that I think were were very helpful. And um, I, I think it was an amazing job that they pulled off. Well, at, at this point, I'd like to move ahead and talk a little bit about how I think we can come at conspiracy theories. And Joe, I think that the way to talk with people who, who believe in conspiracy theories, I think it's ask them to ask them questions. Don't uh, don't tell them they're dumb. Don't tell them they're uninformed. I, th I think the way to try to get someone to think carefully and critically and, uh, you know, modestly, I mean, we, vir the virtue of humility is very important in life. I think it's to ask them questions. It's to go back to Socrates and just ask questions. So in the book that I wrote with Mark Perez, um, I have seven questions, and uh, I want to spend a little time with them, Joe, and I want your input on them. The first question that I ask is this, and, and I think it's a really important place to start. Uh, it's this question. How many people would have to know about the theory in order to effectively pull off the subversion? Now, I know a lot about the Kennedy assassination and I know a lot about the conspiracy theories. Let, let's, assume, let's assume that the government was involved in that. How many people would have to be on the inside? Well, um, I think probably some people may have had to know about it within Kennedy's own administration. Uh, Kenny O'Donnell, uh, Dave Powers, they were the ones that kind of controlled his schedule. Um, you know, I, I think you'd have to have the Secret Service or at least some of them involved, You, FBI, CIA. I love what uh, Vincent Bugliosi said in his uh, book, Reclaiming History, uh, the, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. He said, it seems like so many people would have to know or be in the know, where would they meet to plan it? Madison Square Garden. Mm. I mean, that's that's a big issue. And if I can come back to, to Chief Justice Warren's point, he said that a high-level government conspiracy would inevitably have been discovered. And I, I think that, uh, and Warren, by the way, said, history will prove us right. Um, Gerald Ford said that. He was on the Warren Commission. He says, history is going to prove us right. And I, I have noticed that, you know, in November, it'll be 60 years. And at the high point, there are about 81% of Americans who believed in a conspiracy behind the Kennedy assassination. I think it's dropped to 60. And I suspect it may continue to drop because nobody has a smoking gun. Uh, nobody has evidence uh, and, and so how many people have to be involved? And of course, the idea there is that the more people you have involved, uh, there's, there is greater chance that there's going to be a whistleblower. Somebody's going to have a crisis of conscience. Somebody on their deathbed is going to say this or going to say that. 
Uh, I like what Benjamin Franklin said. He says there may uh, three may keep a secret if two of them are dead, mm. and uh, things leak out. So I, I think that's a really good question uh, to ask people. How many people would have to be in the know to pull this off? And then ask them: Is it reasonable then to conclude that you know it's going to break apart? What do you think about that question? Do you think that that's an important one? Yeah, well, it just has me wondering how many people indeed would have to be involved and to keep the secret, so to speak, because uh, you mentioned um, how many or, or possibilities about uh, the type of people uh, in the very administration that's in question here. And if you if you just kind of go down the line, there must be many, many more. Uh, so how do you how do you find these people? Do you uh, advertise or do you call or do you find people who are aggrieved? Uh, it, it, it just seems like there's a lot going on to, uh, in the case of an assassination. I'm not trying to belittle it because I know people have, you know, their reasons for believing that, but just trying to think about the number of people, it does seem like you have to have a high number involved. Well, there's another kind of tension, uh, kind of a paradoxical idea. I think that I'm, I'm speaking broadly now. I, I think Americans have a kind of a love-hate relationship with their government. On one hand, uh, Americans are always a little suspicious about what the government's going to do. Um, I mean, the Second Amendment was given because there could be tyrannical government and people have a right to arm themselves. On the other hand, I think Americans also uh, are usually very suspicious about the uh, competency of their government. I remember when 9-11, after 9-11, you know, Bush's, Bush's numbers were very low. People, many people thought he was incompetent. You know, he shouldn't be president. He wasn't intelligent. And yet some of those very people who said that said that, you know, he pulled all the strings. He was the puppet master. And he was, I guess he wasn't so dumb after all. He was able to pull off the scheme. Again, I think you want to ask questions like that. How many people would have to know? Uh, and do we have this do we have this capacity to pull it off? It, it seems like for some people, the, the CIA, they can do magic. Um, well, they're a secret organization. Uh, I think they play a, a, a very important role. Um, and I certainly think that the CIA and the FBI made mistakes when it came to Oswald. Um, but I think sometimes we grant uh, too much ability. Okay, here's my second question. Does the theory hold together foundationally? And what I say about that is this, I say well-conceived theories are logically sound and internally consistent. Now, a contradiction, um, a contradiction is when two statements or two propositions negate or deny one another. I think if you have a conspiracy theory and there are, you know, there are bulging contradictions, that's a that's a real reason to 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 think it's wrong. In in fact, in logic, we have uh, 
we call the reductio ad absurdum. And that is that if I have an idea or an argument and it implies a logical contradiction, then my argument has to be wrong. It has to be invalid. And, and so I think that that's a really important question when it comes to these theories do I have a theory that holds together? Is it internally consistent? Now, I'm not saying that you have to have all the, the buttons uh, neatly in a row. You don't have to have all the uh, details uh, together, but, but there needs to be a consistency, a, a, an internal coherence. And I think with a lot of these, um, that's that's a defeater. Um, that is a that is a huge problem. And so, if you get into the practice of just saying to yourself, um, you know what uh, what are the strengths and the weaknesses of my particular view? Uh, so that that's that's that second question, and um, it's a logical question. So the you know the the first one is how many people. And, and what would that do to the theory? Then do you have a theory that makes sense? Does it, does it hold together? Uh, is, it, is it coherent? And if there, if there are major contradictions, uh, that's a defeater, get rid of it, let it go. Uh, I think that's a very strong uh, logical principle. Any comments about that one? No, uh, I have a question on the next one though. Okay. <laughs> All right. Number three is, does the theory comport with the facts? Um, good theories are closely connected to the facts. They not only correspond to, to the known facts, but they make sense of the facts by tying them together and uh, in a coherent explanation. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of facts and details about the Kennedy assassination. Uh, who owned that rifle? Uh, why were there uh, fingerprints in the sniper's nest? Um, uh, you know, you have three shells. Uh, so the Warren Commission says one man, one rifle, three shots. You got you to gotta look at the factual data. Why did Oswald kill Tippett? There are eyewitnesses to that crime. And even when he was uh, apprehended in the Texas uh, theater, um, about about 80 minutes after the assassination, he pulled his pistol and tried to shoot another policeman. But Joe, most of the conspiracy theories these days say Oswald was completely innocent. No. Um, if he didn't kill Kennedy, we know he killed uh, Tippett and he tried to kill another policeman. And what was he running away from? So looking at the facts, question, comment. Yeah, well, uh, my question was on the very case you just brought up. Um, since uh, we're talking about the assassination of President Kennedy, a huge story in the history of this country, uh, some people will refer to the lone gunman theory or single bullet theory as a magic bullet theory. Uh, they would say if you watch the the video, the Abraham Zapruder film, uh, the the president's uh, body, the way it moved was uh, not in the direction you would expect coming from where Oswald was, but perhaps uh, uh, more compelling, uh, maybe we need to look to another shooter on the grassy knoll nearby. 
So you know what I'm getting at, you're well aware, but people do challenge, uh, particularly when they watch that film. Yeah, um, a couple things. Um, you know, there were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of the shooting. So you have about 250, maybe 300 people there in Daly Plaza. Um, and most of them said that the, sh the shots came from the book depository. So it, it came from behind the president, above the president. Uh, but some people said, no, I, I heard shots from the grassy knoll. Uh, in fact, even Kenny O'Donnell and Dave Powers, who, were, uh, who worked for, for JFK, they thought the shots came. And by the way, uh, Powers and, and Kenny were uh, World War II vets. So uh, they've been around gunshots. The vast majority though said that uh, the shots came from behind and, um, you know, you've been there, you've been to Daly Plaza. I've been there about three or four times. You have a lot of echoes. It's hard to tell where, where the shots are coming from. Um, but when you, uh, when you look at the hard evidence, and I, I asked Mark Perez about this. Mark is, uh, worked in law enforcement for 36 years. And I said, Mark, as a, as a policeman, um, how trustful is eyewitness and earwitness. And he said, there's often, there's a lot of problems with it. Um, you know, people think they saw something or they, you know, here they are watching the president of the United States drive by and he, you know, he is murdered in their presence. That's a horrific event. Um, uh, you know, so, so some of these details are difficult, but what we do know, uh, there is a rifle on the sixth floor. There's a sniper's nest on the sixth floor. There were three expended shells. Um, uh, we also know that Oswald was seen on the sixth floor. And we know from the um, autopsy that the president was shot from the back. He was shot in the upper back. It came out his throat. Uh, the bullet began to tumble. It hit Governor Conley. This was a uh, military uh, bullet and and um, it wasn't pristine. It, it was a bit damaged, but uh, Joe, they, they've uh, reenacted this. Uh, they've used lasers. They've examined where Kennedy and Connolly were. Uh, they have, uh, you know, there have been various people who have duplicated the shooting. They've used uh, uh, constructed body parts that would be similar to human flesh. And uh, all of this has been duplicated. Uh, and so I don't call the single bullet theory the magic bullet theory. In fact, I call it the single bullet fact. Hmm. Um, I think it's that strong. Uh, and, and yet, you know, what's interesting, and all you need to do is go on YouTube, there is a lot of footage. I mean, you not only have the classic Zapruder film, about 26 seconds long, a home movie. This was a guy who owned a, a dress shop there in the Daltech building right next to the book depository. You know, he brought his camera and filmed it, but there were other people uh, who filmed as well, a, a, a guy named Nix, um, uh, and various people, and some of it even shows the 
sixth floor. By the way, there are four people that saw a rifle barrel sticking out of the sixth floor. So those are things I think we we know. And 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 we want to look at the facts as uh, as John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. So that that's that's that third question. Does the theory comport with the facts? Now, now here's number four. Uh, does the theory avoid unwarranted presumptions? And there I'm getting at the idea that there's a big difference between presuming to know something and in fact knowing something. Um, there's a whole school of apologetics called presuppositionalism. And it's called that, it's tied to Cornelius Van Til. A uh, couple of my uh, friends were leading presuppositional uh, thinkers, John Frame, Greg Bonson. Um, they would say that everybody brings presuppositions to bear. Everybody makes assumptions. Um, and you can look at the evidence, you know, I might say, well, uh, you know, the the bullet that went through Kennedy and, and did serious damage to Governor Conley, they did a ballistics uh, investigation of that, and uh, they determined that that bullet came from the Mannlicher Carcano rifle owned by Oswald to the exclusion of all other guns. Now, the bullet comes out in such a way that it's an exact science. They also found uh, a couple large bullet fragments probably came out of the president's head. Uh, one of them was near the driver, uh, Bill Greer, who was the uh, Secret Service agent. And another one was under the seat of uh, uh, Governor Conley's wife, Nellie. They were also able to look, there were large enough fragments that they were able to match them to the rifle. Well, um, you know, you could come along and say, yeah, but maybe the FBI or the CIA did a, you know, they planted things. Well, that's that's presumptions. You know, that's you're starting with a conspiracy theory. You want to you want to allow the facts to lead you. And sometimes presuppositions are very good, but sometimes presuppositions are very damaging. And so I think it's good to ask somebody, does the theory that you're holding, does it avoid unwarranted uh, presumptions or assumptions? And, uh, you know, all of us bring our predispositions and maybe we just don't trust the government. And, you know, we don't, we don't trust what they did in Vietnam. We don't trust Bush and what he did in Iraq. And so we kind of think the worst of them but from a Christian point of view, you know, I know uh, every other Sunday at my church uh, in the liturgy, we go through the Ten Commandments. And, you know, it, it talks about uh, bearing false witness. Um, you want to be careful what you assume. I, I think the Bible encourages us to think the best of people if we can, particularly people in the faith. and. Um, I think that I think bad conspiracy theory thinking it corrupts your character, and and so be careful about your assumptions. Um, you know, whether George Bush was a good president or not, I take him at his word that he is a Christian. And I had a lot of guts in a debate. To they ask him, "Well, who's your favorite philosopher?" 
And he said, Jesus Christ, because he changed my life. And I thought, it takes a lot of guts to say that. And uh, so you want to be careful about your, your assumptions. Any, any thoughts about that fourth question? No thoughts. I appreciate it. Okay, number five. How well does the theory handle counter evidence and viable challenges? I, I think that this is a very important point. One thing I've learned from being around Hugh Ross and Dave Rogstad and Fuzz Rana and Jeff Swearink is that, um, you know, when you have a model, you have a scientific model, a hypothesis developing in, into a theory, you're going to get data. And some of the data is going to be consistent with your theory, but there may also be a data that goes against your theory, uh, counter evidence. Um, I think you want to be flexible enough to be able to, a, a good theory is going to be flexible enough that it's going to be able to adjust uh, to potential counter evidence. And, and Vincent Boyosi, by the way, he tried 106 cases for the, uh, the LA District Attorney's Office and he won 105. Hmm. Um, spent 20 years writing about the Kennedy assassination, of course, tried um, Manson. Um, but uh, Boyosi said that in every case he ever tried, there were always things that didn't quite fit. He couldn't, he couldn't make sense of all of the details. Well, I, I think your theory has to be flexible enough that it can, it, it can adjust to counter evidence, uh, to counter evidence to viable challenges. And, um, I think sometimes we don't think about that. We, 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 don't, uh, we, don't, we don't think like a scientist. Um, we don't ask ourselves now, uh, is my theory, I, I know it's really strong here, but how in its weaker areas, can it make those proper adjustments? So I, I think that's another good question. And, and again, I'm suggesting we ask questions. Uh, recently when I, raise some questions on social media, um, you know, it got kind of heated. Um, and, you know, people had strong views. Uh, and um, I, you know, I, I really tried to stay on asking questions, not reacting, uh, just, just trying to get them to, you know, think a little deeper about these kinds of issues. So I, I like that one. I think that that's a very important one. How well does your theory handle counter evidence and viable challenges? Uh, Ken, a question on that one. Uh, let's say in the case of UAPs or UFOs, um, would you consider a personal experience possible counter evidence? Because uh, someone who uh, believes that the government is, is hiding evidence may not be able to produce, produce the evidence for it, but they could say, I was abducted personally, so you cannot tell me my experience is invalid. I know what I experienced. How do we handle that kind of yeah. quote, counter evidence? I put that in quotes. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, and of course, what makes it even more complicated when it comes to UFOs and UAPs and an unidentified aerial phenomena or unidentified anomalous phenomena is you have a whole UFO religion uh, connected to it. You got UFO cults. Um, uh, one scholar of UFO religion said that 
probably the first message received from UFOs came out of a seance. So hmm. there you have mixed religious experiences, abduction, as you mentioned. I guess I have a couple thoughts about it, though. I think one thing that is uh, very interesting in the in the 60 Minutes episode from a couple years ago when they had two F-18 uh, pilots uh, interviewed about it. I mean, these pilots, the governments, the military spends a lot of money training these pilots. And uh, they're trained to, to be observant. And, uh, you know, when, when these pilots say they, they saw something, um, I think you want to take that very seriously. And I, I don't want to discount what uh, a person says. I mean, uh, a lot of these people that played a critical role uh, in the Kennedy assassination they were just average folk just standing there with their kids waving to the president. And, you know, they saw this extraordinary event. I think you want to take them seriously. I think what the what the Warren Commission did is they they listened to the eyewitnesses and earwitnesses. But they said, look, we got to go with the physical evidence. Uh, I know people thought they heard, you know, the grassy knoll or a bullet from the Daltech building or the records building. But, you know, in the sixth floor, we've got expended shells. We've got a rifle. Uh, we've got a Marine who was trained as a, as a sharpshooter. So uh, I think you want to hear that evidence. I think you want to look at that evidence. But I, I think from a, um, a legal standpoint, and I mean a uh, law enforcement, you want to, you want to look at what kind of physical evidence. I mean, um, if you take the autopsy of Kennedy seriously, the shots couldn't have come from the front. Now, that, that's a point that I, I think is worthy, though, of discussion. I remember the first time I saw the uh, Zapruder film it was in 1975. Uh, Geraldo Rivera had a, a talk show late at night, and uh, he had an individual who is a, a leading uh, researcher. I'm going to give him the the respectful term is a leading conspiracy guy. Uh, he advised uh, uh, Oliver Stone in his movie JFK, but they showed it. He, he, he got a copy, a bootlegged copy, and uh, he showed it. And when I saw Kennedy hit and went back into the left, I thought, wow, he must have been shot from the front. Uh, and a lot of people thought that, and I and I think reasonably uh, that that's kind of your your intuition. But you know, there was another investigation of the Kennedy assassination, uh, the congressional uh, hearing on assassinations, which ran from about seventy six to seventy nine. Um, uh, so you have senators looking at evidence, and they were looking at the JFK assassination, but also the assassinations of King and Robert Kennedy. And, um, you know, they, they looked at the, uh, they looked at the data and, uh, you know, they had a number of doctors look at the, uh, the autopsy photos to look at the evidence. And I think eight out of the nine said, yeah, the shot came from behind. And, you know, um, the only, 
I've never seen someone shot. I'm uh, the people that I've seen killed is on TV. Um, you know, there have been a lot of reenactments where people are shot from the back and they fall backwards. So uh, those are those are issues I think you have to look at. And I, I'm a bit sympathetic. I think that um, the Warren Commission last ten months, uh, undoubtedly, they made mistakes. Um, I don't think that the uh, FBI and the CIA were as candid as they should have been with the Warren Commission. Um, I think, but I don't think they were trying to cover up a conspiracy. I think they realized that uh, they uh, they had they had not performed well in protecting the president, and they wanted to cover uh, because of what pride or whatever it may be. But you know, I I think that. Uh, I think what Bugliosi says is right, that this is the most, uh, the Warren Commission was the most thoroughly invested crime in history. And, uh, and so, you know what? You don't have to believe what I believe. I believe there was one man, one rifle, three shots. I think they got it right. If you disagree with that, all I ask is read that one book, The Warren Report. Uh, it's 88 pages. You don't have to read the other 26 volumes. And go to the uh, House Select Committee on Assassinations. They concluded that there was probably a conspiracy. I think they concluded wrongly, but you can get all that info uh, on the web. It's all available. And I go back and forth and look at it. Okay, well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit, Joe, about our two other questions. I know our time's getting away here. Number six, is the theory at least theoretically open to falsification? Now, I think that is a really important one. And again, I, I've learned something from the scientists that I work with. You, you know, you have a hypothesis and you try to shoot it down. You try to negate it, you try to falsify it. I would ask a person, is the theory that you hold about the conspiracy, is it theoretically open to falsification? And if so, how? What, what, would, what would negate your view? What would falsify your view? What would be a defeater for your view? Um, I think that that's a great question to ask. Um, and I, I think it's important for people who want to be reasonable and logical to ask what's the best argument on the other side? What, what could potentially devastate my view? And then number seven, is the theory the best explanation for the available data? So is it, is it consistent? Um, you know, do, is it coherent? Uh, is it the simplest explanation? Uh, does it correspond? So those are those are the kinds of questions that I think people should ask. And, and again, I think that we should ask them as questions. Um, I think people should get into the habit of asking themselves, um, you know, what do I believe deeply? And why do I believe it? And am I, uh, am I skeptical enough? Uh, I think skepticism is not always a bad thing. I think cynicism really hurts, but I think skepticism, honest skepticism is, is good. Uh, I think Christianity has nothing to hide. I think people who are skeptical of Christianity have every right to do that. But I, I wanna see people give these conspiracy theories 
a more rigorous analysis. And, and you know what, if we're proven wrong, I mean, um, I, I think I'm right about who killed Kennedy, but you know, if somebody could prove me wrong, then I'd have to say thank you because you've guided me toward the truth. So that's some of our data. I wanna take this into another program because I have some other things I wanna talk about in terms of kind of thinking through these issues. Great stuff. I appreciate the questions, Ken. I know they help me because I tend to want to rush ahead uh, due to, uh, you know, lack of trust in government and the the fun of exploring these kinds of things. Uh, it, it's uh, entertaining in a way. Also very serious. You know, you, you're talking about serious subjects, so not to make light of it, but it does kind of keep our minds uh, going and it's it's something to to do rather than accept something uh, to consider you know a different way to think about it. So these questions I think will be helpful. And as you said at the very end there, the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Um, that's our tagline at the end of this podcast. And that's a good reminder when considering conspiracies. Yeah, very good. All right, well, that's gonna wrap it up uh, for this one. Uh, give us a teaser on the next show, Ken. Yeah, I, I wanna look at, uh, in, in light of these kind of questions, I wanna look at the virtues of careful thinking. What, what, what is it that a careful thinker does in terms of actions and virtues? So uh, kind of a life of the mind, life of reflection. Wonderful, all right. Well, looking forward to that. In the meantime, let us know your comments and questions. Reach out to Ken via Twitter at RTB underscore case samples. We'll be glad to read your comment here. Uh, you can get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Play podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.